from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Um, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, June 8th. Today, ramping up the fight against ransomware attacks and why President Biden wants to make diplomacy boring again. Good afternoon. Thank you all for being here. Today, the Department of Justice is announcing a significant development in the ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline. I'm joined today by FBI Deputy Director Paul. On Monday, the Department of Justice announced a big win against hackers who targeted a pipeline last month. The Department of Justice has found and recaptured the majority of the ransom Colonial paid to the dark side network in the wake of last month's ransomware attack. Federal agents reclaimed millions of dollars in Bitcoin. We talked to cybersecurity reporter Joe Marks about the efforts to punish the people behind this attack and why it matters for the future. So this all started last month when there was a ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline, one of the largest gas pipelines that serves the United States. All of their servers were locked up, held for ransom until the company paid a $4.4 million ransom to unlock them. That disrupted gas supplies in the southeastern United States, caused some panic buying, raised gas prices for a while, was really disruptive in a way that we haven't seen ransomware attacks be to date. Fast forward to just this Monday, the Justice Department announced that in one of the most significant actions it's taken against a ransomware gang so far, it was able to crack into the Bitcoin wallet used by that those ransomware hackers and claw back most of the money that they received. In terms of the public awareness and the effect on critical infrastructure and the effect on the sense of Americans' national economic security is probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest, ransomware attacks that has ever happened. So the Justice Department in this case made this attack not worthwhile for the people who conducted it. And I think what was so noticeable about this ransomware attack that happened last month is that before that, I mean, I'm not sure that many Americans had even heard of a ransomware attack. And frankly, I still don't really know what a ransomware attack is. And I think a lot of people are a little bit confused. So maybe you could just explain what is this kind of attack and why are we starting to see more of these events happening? Yeah, this is one of those concerns that was just sort of growing and growing in plain sight for a long time until finally it really took over the public notice. I mean, this has shut down schools that are working remotely during the pandemic for days on end. It shut down large chunks of the city of Baltimore for up to a month during 2019. These are attacks where the hackers crack into your computer, but instead of just stealing the information, they basically lock up your computers, encrypt all that data and say, hey, if you want to get back into your computers and conduct business, you've got to pay us a ransom. These ransoms can get really, really high because they expect that people will pay them, especially if they work in one of these critical sectors like pipelines, where 
if they aren't conducting business, you know, not only is it a huge economic hit to them, but also it's it's drawing huge public attention from Congress, from consumers, uh, and from Washington. And the people who are doing these attacks and basically saying, look, you have to give me a bunch of money if you want to get your system back online. Is this a random hacker or someone who's really good with computers who is conducting these attacks by themselves? Or is there like a organized crime entity around this? It's organized crime with the emphasis on organized. I mean, this is a business. It's a disaggregated business. A lot of them are based in Russia and in some of the states of the former Soviet Union. A lot of the work is conducted in places where it's tough to extradite people from or the in places where you're unlikely to get arrested for doing this kind of business so long as you're not doing it to people inside the country itself. But there are people who take part in this who are, who are everywhere, who are probably in the United States working kind of collectively in a disaggregated way. And if you say these kinds of incidents are becoming more common and affecting both private companies and also the government, why is that? Why are ransomware attacks taking place more frequently? Basically because they pay and because the ransomware gangs have shown that this business model works. So it happens more and more often, more and more people are getting into it. And the defense side just hasn't caught up. We've been talking about the danger of this and other cyber attacks for a couple of decades. At this point, a lot of companies just aren't putting in the kind of security that's going to keep these people out. And many of these attacks are also wrapped up in cryptocurrency, correct? Which I imagine is what makes it even more difficult for law enforcement is that cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is designed to essentially be untrackable. You can't just go to the bank and have federal prosecutors say, look, these people did something illegal and you have to give us their money. So how does that play a role in the challenges of being able to investigate and prosecute these kinds of attacks? It plays a major role, right? The ransomware would not be what it is absent cryptocurrency and the ability to transfer money in a way that's anonymous. So a lot of the efforts in combating this have focused on starting to require some more transparency from cryptocurrency exchanges. The Justice Department wants is to impose these know-your-customer requirements that exist on U.S. territory so that when they for example, see a large amount of cryptocurrency exchange, they can require knowing who those people are, if that's an exchange amount that matches a really big ransom that was recently paid, then they can track that, they can try to figure out who has it, and they might have a chance of clawing that back. That's not going to help you to actually prosecute these the people who are conducting this, right? If they're on Russian territory, which most of them are, chances are they're not going to see the inside of a U.S courtroom. But at least if you can claw some of the money back, as they did in the colonial case, you can start to turn the tide so that these attacks become less profitable. So the fact that the Department of Justice has now gotten back some of the money that was stolen in this very high-profile attack, what does that tell us about how federal law enforcement is going to be pursuing this going forward? Well, it's one big example that they're pursuing it very aggressively. The Justice Department has a special task force for ransomware that they've put together in just the last couple of months. They have said that they're going to start treating this with all the seriousness they treat terrorism and their other serious investigations. So this is really a top priority for the Justice Department. The fact that they were able to claw back this money is a big signal, but we don't know how significant it is yet. The department has not been 
totally transparent about exactly how they managed to do this, how they got the key that allowed them to get into that wallet. They say that the method they used is replicable, but we don't know how often they'll be able to replicate it or how much work that's going to require. So if they're able to do that, then ultimately over a course of time with other efforts from across the government, including getting these companies to improve their own security, including trying to to the extent we can work with Russia and other countries that are harboring these groups, eventually you can start to turn the tide a little bit so that at least these gangs aren't attacking the most critical infrastructure that's going to, you know, really upset the U.S. economy. And I think many Americans remember the colonial pipeline attack for the fact that it resulted in there being a short on gas for people's cars. So the reasons for that are maybe a little bit more complicated than are worth getting into right now. But how has that company been talking about this attack? And do we have a sense that they are prepared to prevent this from happening again? Just today, the CEO of Colonial Pipeline, Joseph Blount, testified before the Senate Homeland Security Committee. The attack forced us to make difficult choices in real time that no company ever wants to face. But I am proud of the way our people reacted quickly to isolate and contain the attack so that we could get the pipeline back up and running safely. He has consistently defended the fact that they paid the ransom. They say it's the right thing for America in order to get the pipelines back up and running. There's been some skepticism about that from members of Congress who say, you know, you're just encouraging the the attackers to do even more brazen things. But he's also said, hey, we understand that the security did not keep pace with the threat. We've put new protections in since then. We are further hardening our cyber defenses. We have rebuilt and restored our critical IT systems and are continuing to enhance our safeguards. Since the pipeline attack, the TSA, which does the regulation for pipelines, has begun mandating first that energy companies are fully transparent about when they're attacked. Every time they have a cybersecurity incident, they're working their way up to requiring certain minimum cybersecurity protections for pipeline companies, which previously had been voluntary. That's a big move by the government. There are only a handful of industries where the government actually requires certain cybersecurity protections, the nuclear sector and things like that. We're beginning to maybe see with this move to pipelines a shift in things being a little bit less voluntary, a little bit more mandatory, but that's not really a comfortable place even for the government regulators. And so that's going to take some time. Well, I wonder if that could be one of the consequences of this particular attack from last month is that, especially considering how little many people know about ransomware right now, the fact that something so high profile happened is at least a warning to other companies, to government entities, that they need to start thinking about being prepared for these kinds of cyber attacks. You can certainly see in industry, people are hearing this loud and clear. And this is a message that in some form has been coming out from the government, from the Homeland Security Department, from cybersecurity experts for a long time. Industry has not really been picking up on it in the way that they'd hope. They are picking up more on it now. I think there's a real sense among industry that they have to get their cybersecurity protections in order so they're not the next high-profile ransomware attack. Whether mandates are going to come, that that's still an open question. You certainly see former government officials who are in industry now talking about it much more aggressively and much more openly than they used to. 
by and large, they're now saying, yeah, it's time for the government to step in and require minimum cybersecurity protections. The market has not done this. It's time for government to take action. Joe Marks writes the Cybersecurity 202 newsletter for The Post. The story was produced by Sabby Robinson. President Biden is heading out on his first overseas trip of his presidency to a series of meetings in Europe. This will be the Group of Seven Nations, which is being hosted in Britain, then a major NATO summit in Brussels, where he'll also meet quite a few of the leaders of the European Union, and then to what will certainly be a pretty interesting meeting between him and Russian President Vladimir Putin in Switzerland. Ishan Theroar is a foreign affairs columnist at The Post. He spoke with Alexis Diao from Post Reports. All of this is happening quite a few months into his presidency, but it's part of Biden's broader desire to reset ties with some of the U.S.'s closest partners, as well as, in his idea, restore a certain element of reliable U.S. leadership on the world stage. I want to start with his first stop with the Group of Seven, Ishan, can you tell us very basically what is the G7 and what's supposed to happen at this meeting? Group of seven nations are a number of major Western uh, economies plus Japan. They're all democracies. They're a a group of longstanding uh, U.S. allies. And it's seen as a bit of a club of 20th century powers. And so you'll see this week, while the G7 meets on a whole host of issues from the pandemic to global tax policy, that there'll also be a major talking point about their ideological affinities. This is being billed as a meeting of democracies. And of course, President Biden himself is very interested in pushing this line. In this Washington Post op-ed, he lays out his broad thinking as he approaches the trip. And it's something we've heard him talk quite a lot about already, this idea of what he calls a defining moment of our time, this question of whether democracies or autocracies will ultimately run the 21st century. That part of what he is doing on the world stage and part of what the United States must do in the years to come is hold the line in this kind of global clash between democratic systems and ascendant autocratic or illiberal forces elsewhere. What is at the top of the agenda for Biden? I mean, what is he hoping to get done at the G7? The bar isn't particularly high for Biden. One analyst of European politics that I spoke to said simply that his main role will be to make all this stuff, these NATO summits, this uh, G7 meeting, boring again. Because under Trump, uh, some of these set-piece meetings became testy sites of confrontation and pretty emblematic of the uncertainty and doubts that Trump was introducing to the transatlantic alliance and to the various tethers of of the broader Western geopolitical uh, landscape. Biden hopes to use his meetings also as a kind of galvanizing moment where he he hopes to be rallying uh, U.S. allies around a set of common causes, including sharpening the lines of confrontation with China, working towards some greater efforts toward bolstering the fight against the pandemic, 
And then in general, revitalizing and kind of renovating the various institutions that define the transatlantic alliance, whether it's NATO or other parts of the, the Western alliance system. And all of this will happen before Biden goes to Geneva to, to meet uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin. And the symbolism of this is very important. If you remember in 2018, when Trump met Putin in that now infamous encounter in Helsinki, Finland. They said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this. I don't see any reason why it would be. The president accepting Vladimir Putin's denials of Russian election interference. Before he had that meeting with Putin, he had sort of barnstormed through Europe uh, in an incredibly acrimonious set of visits to various places, antagonizing U.S. allies and saying rather conspicuous things that made many people feel quite insecure about Trump's and, and by extension, the U.S.'s commitments to elements of European security and the European relationship. And so I think Biden is really, more than anything, looking forward to drawing a, a pretty stark contrast to Trump's dealings with European partners. And that'll probably be quite easy for him to do. What is the feeling of European leaders in their relationship with the U.S.? I mean, as Biden kind of goes on this campaign to try to reset some of our partnerships, are they open to that? I mean, there's no doubt that the Europeans, by and large, are relieved that Trump is no longer in the White House. And in the form of Biden, you have a tried and tested American politician who they understand and who they can, by and large, do a lot of work with. Though it's, of course, important to recognize that there are still elements of Trump's trade war and tariffs on the Europeans still in place. And there's also a broader kind of shift that's happened and that started happening definitely under Trump, but will continue, which is the Europeans themselves now more broadly, the need for them to somewhat emerge from underneath the U.S.'s umbrella. And they also recognize that Biden may not be there for that long or that the forces that put Biden into power could lose in elections to come. And there may be a new populist nationalist back in the White House not long from now. So as reassuring as Biden hopes to be, there is also a broader recognition that Western politics are changing and that the kind of guarantees and security and the things that were taken for granted, say, in the you know, last few decades of the 20th century, can't be taken for granted now. Ishan, I want to ask you about, of course, the pandemic, which is raging pretty much everywhere else in the world, except for the U.S. We're here, you know, vaccinations are up, things are beginning to go back to normal or pre-pandemic as much as they can. Do we expect this issue of vaccine inequality and distribution potentially to come up at the G7? For months now, you've had a group of pretty influential international uh, uh, humanitarian organizations and international organizations in the UN system rallying around the idea that the world's wealthy nations basically need to bankroll the vaccination of the rest of the world. And those discussions may emerge at the G7. The US has already committed around $4 billion to uh, the WHO's COVAX facility, which is aimed at, at delivering vaccines to poor middle-income middle countries around the world. And it's planning on sending out around 80 million doses of the vaccine to other countries in, in the grips of the pandemic. By the end of June, when we will have taken delivery of enough of such vaccines to protect everyone in the United States, 
the United States will share at least 20 million of those doses, that extra supply with other countries. This means over the next six weeks, the United States of America will send 80 million doses overseas. That represents 13% of the vaccines produced by the United States by the end of June. This is pretty significant contributions, but global activists, including a number of former world leaders, believe that the U.S. and wealthy nations can do much, much more. There have been plans put forward, which may come up at the G7, about a commitment of around $70 billion to really supercharge global vaccination efforts. And we'll see in the coming days what kind of real commitments emerge. Ishan Theroar is a foreign affairs columnist for The Post. He spoke with Alexis Diao, an editor for Post Reports. Ariel Plotnik produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Muhammad. So many Americans are vaccinated right now, but many others are not. And we've gotten some really thoughtful questions from you about how to navigate the early aftertimes. Today is the last day to send in your questions for our advice columnist, Carolyn Hacks, about the awkward social situations brought on by the pandemic. Record a voice memo and email your question to postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.